I am really happy to be joined by Naomi Winstone, who, along with her collaborators Robert Nash, Michael Parker, and James Roundtree, wrote an article in Educational Psychologists entitled Supporting Learners' Agenic Engagement with Feedback, a Systematic Review and a Taxonomy of Recipients' Processes. Um, Naomi is a cognitive psychologist specializing in learning behavior and processing of feedback information. She is a senior lecturer at the University of Surrey, United Kingdom, and a senior fellow of the Higher Education Academy. In 2016, she was made a United Kingdom National Teaching Fellow in recognition of her contributions to the enhancement of learning in higher education. She runs training events at schools, colleges, and universities across Europe to support educators to maximize the impact of assessment feedback. Naomi, thank you for doing this with us. So uh, to begin, can you briefly summarize your article for us, kind of give us an overall sense of what you wrote about? Yeah, sure. Uh, the article that we wrote is a systematic review of 195 papers on engagement with assessment feedback. Uh, we looked at papers between 1984 and 2014. And what we were really aiming to do was to synthesize the literature. First of all, looking at the factors that might influence learners' engagement with feedback and recognising that feedback is a communicative event. So we looked at characteristics of the sender of the feedback, the characteristics and behaviour of the receiver, and then the characteristics of the feedback message, and also the characteristics of the context within which that message is received. We then also looked through the literature for examples of interventions that educators have trialled to support students' engagement with feedback. And we looked for the underpinning cognitive processes that might represent the core features of engagement with feedback. And then we also summarised the strengths and the limitations of some of these interventions. So it's, it's a really wonderful article. And uh, as you noted, there, it's, it's really filling a gap in the literature. We just don't know. Uh, we haven't had a synthetic review, I think, of how people receive feedback and how they process it. And so it, it really is pointing to a number of interesting issues. Uh, we'll see. We probably can't get to all of them, but I, I do want to talk about a couple. I think the, the first one I want to talk about is your idea of proactive recipients of feedback. And could you define that for us and discuss its role in how students benefit from feedback? Yeah, so I think that, as you say, there's a lot that's written about how educators deliver feedback. And then there's almost this assumption that once feedback is given to students, they will sit there and they will read it and act upon it and, and use that information. But actually, we really don't know what they do because a lot of what goes on when students receive feedback is, is hidden from our view. And so we started to think about what it really means to use feedback. And if our students were, were using their feedback, what we, would, what we would want to see if they were doing that. I think the best example that I can give uh, to think about proactive recipients as being more than just reading feedback or more than just thinking about the feedback is to use an analogy of uh, an athlete who's just been advised by their coach that they need to improve some elements of their performance. So they've been given that feedback and they could go away next time and when they're in training think I might need to do something differently. And they're using that feedback, but what would take that recipients to the next level to being proactive recipients of the feedback is, for example, they might video themselves next time they were in training and watch that back and self-appraise whether they were really developing and, and doing better in the skill that their coach had identified. 
Or they might even go back to their coach and say, I've really been working on this element of my performance. Can you give me some feedback about how I'm doing? So that's the proactive bit, that the learner is very much involved in the process of using feedback productively, but also doing things like self-appraisal and engaging in further feedback seeking. So that, that makes a lot of sense to me, and it reminds me of kind of the expertise literature and the deliberate practice literature, and your example of uh, an athlete and a coach maybe brought that to mind. But it sounds like one of the things that we hope happens is that students will internalize the ability to um, act on feedback in a proactive way. Absolutely, yes, that's exactly it. And so that, that kind of connects to one of the things that you identified as important to uh, increasing students' likelihood of being proactive, and that's, that's self-regulation, and that's something that I study, so that really caught my attention. Um, so why do you think that receiving and successfully using feedback requires self-regulation? How does that help people respond positively to feedback? I think it's because if you want to use feedback productively, it's an ongoing process. It's not something where you will suddenly see that impact. Even though some students do expect that if they receive feedback, that is automatically going to improve their grade. But it is an ongoing process. It involves planning and monitoring and thinking about what you're doing. And I think the other thing that's really important is that you might be giving students information about things that they need to improve. But unless they've really internalised that, then they won't be able to take advantage of skill development opportunities that might arise quite unexpectedly after some time. They need to be able to monitor what they're doing and think, oh, there's this opportunity that I can use to develop this skill, or I'm trying to develop this particular skill and this strategy that I'm using isn't quite working, so I might need to take a different tack. And I think it's that ongoing process of planning and monitoring that's really important to seeing the long-term impact of feedback. That's really interesting. So that does get back to this idea about internalizing the ability to take advantage of feedback. It sounds like we want students to be thinking about the feedback they receive directly from people, but also looking for different kinds of feedback in their life and integrating that into a self-reflection process. And that, that does sound like a set of knowledge, skills, and dispositions that need to be taught and learned over time. That makes sense to me. Absolutely. I totally agree with you. I think one of the things that I feel very strongly about is that in schools and in higher education, we spend a lot of time supporting the development of, of academic skills in students, but we tend to focus on things like essay writing or uh, citation and referencing skills. Very rarely do we see training in how to use feedback as being a core part of that skills development curriculum. Yet the ability to use feedback well is, is not just an academic skill, it's a, it's a life skill. When you get into the workplace, you need to be able to receive feedback and put it into practice, but also able to give feedback to other people and recognize how to do that well. That's a really important point, right? So we, it doesn't, I think what you're saying is that uh, learning how to learn from feedback is not necessarily an educational standard that gets identified very often. It doesn't become a focus of the instructional aspects of school. Um, and I, I guess I'm wondering if that's why so many people don't like getting feedback. I mean, maybe this is my perception, but it, it feels like people are often respond negatively to feedback. I mean, is it because we don't know how to work with it well? Do you think there's something we can do to help people be more open to feedback? 
I think as a discipline, there's lots that psychology can do to help people to be more open to receiving feedback. Myself and my colleague Rob Nash, we wrote a piece for the BBC, which was about basic cognitive biases that can prevent meaningful engagement with feedback. And what we found was there are lots of things that can automatically get in the way um, of our feedback, our engagement with feedback, which are actually quite uh, unconscious. We don't really know these things are happening, they're automatic, and they prevent us from being open to those messages. And I think another really important message about the use of feedback is that we may criticise students for not using feedback very well. But actually, this isn't just something that relates to students. It's very much a human thing where we can be unconsciously or consciously resistant to feedback information. Mm -hmm. And so that would seem to affect, um, for example, in your paper, you talk about the readiness to engage with feedback and the self-efficacy to think that they can change. It sounds like the work that you've done with Rob Nash would suggest that um, there are also cotton biases that could affect readiness and uh, and one's perception that they could actually act on that feedback. Yes, absolutely. One really good example is the information avoidance literature, where if you receive information that you think is going to require you to do something that's really quite difficult and quite effortful, then we can shut off from really engaging with that information because it just feels like too much hard work. And again, I think that's a really important message when constructing feedback for students. We could be really well-meaning and we could be giving students lots and lots of really detailed comments on their work. But actually what they really need is focused information about the priorities for them to work on right now. Because too much information could lead to them feeling completely overwhelmed and this information avoidance effect. Right. I think in your paper you talked about the quality of feedback versus the quantity of feedback. And I, I, you quoted some literature showing that students often say that they feel overwhelmed, as you said by the feedback. So we have to be very targeted in the kind of feedback we provide. Yeah, absolutely. One of the problems that we have in the UK is the National Student Survey, which is a, a metric that feeds into our league tables. And the wording of the items there, which really focus on the feedback that students are receiving and how useful that is, has sort of led to this idea that high quality feedback is really detailed feedback. Whereas actually it's actionable feedback, something that, as you say, a student feels they have agency to do something with. That's what's really helpful feedback. That, that strikes me as, as a really important distinction that I think your paper draws very, very well. And I, it reminds me of another distinction that I thought was really useful was you talked about feedback focusing on task performance versus task process versus the person themselves. And so. Can you talk to us about how those three foci differ and how we could provide feedback in effective ways for those different types of feedback? Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, the, the most common type of feedback that learners have to receive is feedback on the task, the piece of work that they've been doing. But often that has less use to them than more generic feedback about the way they've gone about the task because they may not be doing a similar assignment again um, and so there's not so much use in that specific feedback. But process task level feedback might give them information about their learning behaviour, their learning approaches, uh, how they went about doing the assignment that would perhaps be more transferable across different pieces of work they might be doing. 
Hattie and Timberley talked about feedback at the, the person level as being quite risky because you can really make the learner feel that it's them that's at fault rather than the work. So you take a comment like uh, not academic enough, the marker there might actually be referring to their use of sources and saying that the, the sources they've used are not really uh, academic enough. But the student could take that on board and think, well, I'm not academic enough. So I think really the important distinction is even beyond the task or process or person level, it's just about feedback being actionable. That there is something a learner can do and take forward rather than the feedback just being a comment or a justification of the grade. It really needs to be actionable. That's interesting. I think so. That's a really good point because I think about the push for rubrics and the push for like very detailed grading criteria. And those can be useful, but if they don't, if they aren't actionable, if they don't help the student actually change what they're doing or reflect upon what they're doing to change, then I, I guess it's not, if it's very detailed, doesn't mean it's necessarily going to be helpful. Absolutely. Uh, David Bowd, who's at Deakin University in Australia, he says that if feedback isn't acted upon, if it doesn't lead to some change in students' actions or behaviours, it simply isn't feedback. And it makes a lot of sense if we think back to the physical sciences and the origins of this term feedback. It's information that, that gets fed back into some kind of system which adjusts what that system is doing. And that action is, is absolutely essential. Roy Sadler talks about feedback that isn't uh, actioned as, as being dangling data. So if feedback isn't used, it, it simply isn't feedback. It has to be about that change. That's, okay, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. If a tree falls in the woods, there's no one there to hear it. It doesn't make any sound. Exactly, exactly. Okay, that, that's really helpful. Another thing that you talk about kind of in this constellation of issues that I think don't get enough attention in the feedback literature is that some students don't know the criteria for success or how to use the feedback to meet that criteria. What can we do to help students better understand the quality feedback that we provide them to be successful? I think encouraging the students to engage with criteria and to consider the, the standards of the work they're producing is absolutely fundamental to self-regulation. In some cases, I think there's a resistance to sharing assessment criteria with students with the perception that we're, we're making it too easy for them. But actually, if we want students to develop self-regulation, then they need access to that side of the assessment process. They need to be able to take the perspective of a marker to recognise what quality work might look like. Otherwise, feedback is going to be useless because they don't really know what they're working towards. So things like sharing exemplars with students and encouraging them to use assessment criteria to assess the work of peers, for example, will just give them that insight into what it's like to be on the other side of the assessment process. And I think that's absolutely fundamental if we want them to understand how they can use feedback to take their work to that next level. Right, that that makes sense. And so that we've talked about a couple different things that all within your stage taxonomy of recipients' processes, which I thought was another really very, very important contribution of your work. Can you tell us about those processes and how they can help us think about feedback interventions? Absolutely, yes. One of the things that we had realized uh, when we started looking at the literature on engagement with feedback 
was that there wasn't really anything out there to give us a theoretical grounding of what we might be trying to improve um, when we're talking about students' engagement with feedback. What does that actually mean? And we felt that as psychologists, we wanted to be thinking about interventions in terms of the skills and the cognitive processes that those interventions were actually targeting. So what we did in all of the papers that we looked at, uh, we looked specifically for what the authors had mentioned as the rationale for, for their intervention. That is, what process or what skill were they trying to target through this intervention? And it was much easier to find that rationale in some papers than others. And what we found within these, these processes, these, these uh, rationales, was four main themes. We have self-appraisal, which is more than just assessing your own work. It's actually being prepared to make judgments about ourselves, our traits and our behaviour, to recognise our strengths and weaknesses and to see that we can take our strengths and use those to help improve our weaknesses. The second process is assessment literacy, which is, as we've been talking about, this idea of being able to take the perspective of the marker to understand the grading process and then to make judgments about one's own work on the basis of, of being able to internalise these standards. Goal setting and self-regulation. This represents the process of being able to say what is it I want to do and where do I want to get to and then adopting goal-directed behaviours to get there but also monitoring and evaluating our own progress and the approaches that we've taken perhaps adjusting our strategy if the one we've selected doesn't quite seem to be working and helping us to get towards the goals that we're trying to reach on the basis of feedback. Finally, engagement and motivation. We noticed that a lot of the interventions in the literature were designed just to get students to be more willing to look at feedback and engage with that information. So this process really represents motivation and an attitude to say I'm open to receiving information about myself and my work, even if that makes me feel uncomfortable or, or sad. What we argue is that if we understand these processes, we can start to think then about improving students' engagement with feedback, not in a general way, but in quite a targeted way. It will help us to decide how we're going to assess the efficacy of these approaches but overall, just to think about interventions in a much more theoretically driven way. So I think this is this is a really wonderful taxonomy because I, I believe you mentioned this, but in the paper you talked about how it doesn't seem like there's an intervention out there that has really covered all of these areas, that has really taken kind of an omnibus approach to helping students enact proactive recipients or benefit from feedback. Um, and that, and I think your paper points to directions on, on how to do that. Do you have a sense of, of why folks have not been able to kind of put these things together into an effective intervention yet? I think it's because a lot of the things that we talk about in the paper, a lot of the interventions that we reviewed that might support engagement with feedback are actually quite time consuming to put in place. I think if we can put them in place, they will definitely pay us back in terms of students taking on more responsibility for using feedback well, rather than all that pressure being placed on the educator. But a lot of the approaches were really quite small scale, trying one thing and, and seeing what impact it has. 
one of the reasons why I think we're not seeing that, that more uniform approach is because lots of these interventions are, are add-ons. They're not embedded within the curriculum. And so I think the way forward is to treat the reception of feedback as we would any other academic skill to make that part of the student's development and part of the time we spend with students in the classroom, rather than it being optional sessions or optional things for students to engage with. I see. That makes sense, right? So you can't just kind of drop in one day and say, hey, everyone, this is how you benefit from feedback and then never talk about it again and never model it and not address the climate for feedback, et cetera, and reinforce it. You're suggesting that the SAGE taxonomy has identified things that really need to be infused throughout the academic experience. Absolutely. Uh, we need to make sure that we're, we're not making assumptions about whether or not students will know how to do these things. We might say, of course, students know how to use feedback to develop. But actually, what does that mean within an academic context? And perhaps more importantly, what does that mean within the context of their own discipline? Because the use of feedback and the impact of feedback really differs according to the, the discipline in which the student is working. And the same applies to assessment literacy. We can say, well, they've got assessment criteria, they've got the rubric, but do they really understand what it means? So we need to have a dialogue with students so we can discuss the criteria, really pull them apart and for students to then internalise them so that they can go on and apply them to their own work and assessing the work of others too. That, that makes sense to me. And I, this kind of omnibus approach to helping students benefit from feedback uh, stands in contrast to the literature so far. And you talk about how there's a lack of, interestingly, there's a lack of experimental work on learners' engagement with feedback. Um, as we attempt to figure out proper dosage and active ingredients and the kinds of things that are, are most worth our attention and helping students benefit from feedback, how what might an experimental study of proactive recipients look like? How, how would someone do that? I think that depends really on whether we would be looking for an experiment in the field or whether we are looking at, at laboratory work. I think there's a case to be made for starting in the laboratory because there is so little experimental research uh, on engagement and processing of feedback. There's obviously quite a large literature on the effects of feedback and how that feeds into learning. But in terms of how it's actually being processed, I think that's something that we're really missing out on. So the work that we've been doing has been looking at students' memory for feedback. We developed a, a paradigm where students first come into the lab and they write some short essays. And then they're told that those essays are going to be taken away, marked by a member of the teaching team. And then they'll come back to the lab two days later where they'll receive feedback on their essays before they then go on and do another uh, writing task. In fact, that last bit's a lie because we don't actually mark their essays. Um, they come back to the lab and they get some carefully crafted feedback so that we can control various elements within it. And they're then shown this feedback in the second lab session, all this time believing they're going to be doing another writing task. We then give them a short filler activity and then they get a surprise recall test. They don't then actually go on to do another writing task because what we're really interested in is what they remember from the feedback. And what we found from this work has been really quite surprising because we talk a lot in education about feed forward and we give students information directed towards future improvement. 
But what we've shown across the whole series of studies we've done is what we've called an evaluative recall bias, where people are much more likely to remember feedback telling them how they had performed in the past, not how they can improve in the future. So I think these kinds of studies where we can take all the theories we have in psychology, the literature on, on memory and attention, can actually start to give us insight into the way in which we process feedback information. And that's the information that can lead towards the development of interventions or practices which we can then begin to test experimentally and then move into field studies. That's a really nice example. Thank you. And it, it, it illustrates, I think, a, a concern, right? So if people aren't remembering the evaluative, if they aren't remembering the evaluative feedback, then that suggests that this internalization process that you want them to engage in, this reflection and preparation for future proactive recipients, it sounds like that might be hard to do, or at least at the moment we, we're finding evidence of some kind of block towards that. Am I interpreting that correctly? Yes, exactly. It's the, it's the directive feedback that they're less likely to remember than the evaluative feedback. What's really interesting is that in some of our most recent studies, we used eye tracking to see whether this is an effect that's occurring at encoding or retrieval. And actually, when we look at the eye tracking data, what students are doing is they're literally just reading through the feedback line by line. They don't revisit any elements of the feedback and they're certainly not spending any longer time dwelling on the evaluative feedback rather than the directive feedback. So it doesn't seem to be occurring at the point of, of actually engaging with the information, but when they come to think back to what the feedback told them. And that has a really important implication because when students are in a future learning situation, they might be thinking back to what a member of staff had told them previously about their work, and they need to be able to bring to mind that important information and accurately remember it so that they can access skill development opportunities at that particular point in time. Mm, okay, good, thank you. So I, I think I used the wrong term there. So um, they forget the directive feedback, which is that information about how they can improve in the future, and they focus more on that evaluative feedback. That's right, yes. Okay, that, I mean, that's certainly um, a powerful finding that I think we need to address very directly. Do you think there's uh, a transfer do you think that the findings in the lab that you've uncovered are going to be similar in the classroom do you think that in the classroom students also are um, more likely to forget the directive feedback we're testing that very thing at the moment we're developing a paradigm where in fact students do go on to do a second writing task and we've used linguistic coding software to look at exactly what kind of language they're using in their first piece of work then they're given feedback on their use of language and we can actually quantify which bits of feedback they're using to change their writing for the second task. Uh, we're working on that at the moment. One of the things we found though is that despite this being an experimental paradigm where we're using a small amount of deception within the design, students believe they're getting personalised feedback uh, when in fact it's generic, but they absolutely believe this feedback is real and that it's personalised. And we've also seen the same effect when students don't do any writing task at all. We simply show them some feedback and say, this is feedback that somebody else received on the, their work. Read it. And then we give them the same surprise recall task and we get exactly the same findings. They're much more likely to remember the evaluative past oriented feedback 
than the future-oriented directive feedback. It's really interesting. So if I'm hearing you correctly, you're saying that students aren't good at identifying feedback that is not personalized. So the feedback could be kind of completely tangential to their performance and they don't really recognize that. Is that what you're finding? Yeah, we were really careful in designing the feedback so that it could be uh, suitably applied to, to, to writing that students had done. It, it does have a general sense to it, um, but students do believe it's relevant to them. It shows it's a bit like the Barnum effect. In reality, this is very general information, but in the context of the task that students have done, they believe it really applies to them. So you've already talked about a couple of things that you're working on um, based upon the findings of this article. Are there other uh, future directions for research either you are doing or that you think people should do to keep pushing this work forward? Yeah, I think there are two key directions for the future. One of them is to focus much more on cognitive processing of feedback, behavioural data, um, and using the richness that we have in psychology to then inform educational practice in this area. I think there's huge potential for us to understand more about feedback as a communicative event, and therefore using different theories and paradigms from psychology to get a better understanding of what's actually going on when we receive information about our, our work or our skills. The second important direction I think relates much more to trying to improve educational practice and applying the processes within our taxonomy to try and understand how we might be able to make the feedback process more impactful for both educators and students. And as I mentioned in the paper, one of the ways in which we've been trying to do this is to put together a collection of resources so that an intervention is not just this small piecemeal approach. So we developed a toolkit of resources for educators to use to support students to develop proactive recipient skills. And we've been trialling that toolkit in various educational contexts, both in higher education and K-12 education as well, and seeing how this is helping to develop student skills in using feedback effectively. Well, that sounds like really important work. I'm sure there are many educators that would be very grateful for assistance in helping their students benefit from feedback. Um, particularly in K-12, because as you mentioned in the paper, a lot of the work's done in higher education and not as much in K-12 context. So um, that sounds like really important uh, research and public service. Yes, one of the things that I think is really important and certainly something that I've recognised from working with different teachers in schools is that there's an incredible amount of excellent practice in schools in terms of supporting students to use feedback. Uh, in the UK, we're seeing increasing use of what's called DIRT time, dedicated improvement and reflection time, which is when people are, are having work returned to them and then the students have classroom time dedicated to the opportunity to think about that feedback, assimilate it and apply it directly to their work at that point in time. And I wonder whether in our review we, we didn't see so much work coming from um, school education, the majority of papers came from higher education. I wonder if that's because in higher education we are often practitioners and researchers and so we're more likely to actually publish our work and so it comes into the literature whereas there's this real richness of practice going on in schools that perhaps doesn't make it through within to the published literature. Interesting, right. So that 
uh, it sounds like in this case, there it might be the case that there's a lot to learn from what's currently being done, and we just need to help folks disseminate disseminate that information more effectively. Absolutely, yes. Are there other ways that we can help students learn how to better utilize feedback than what we've discussed so far? I think there's one general point which applies regardless of the nature of the education system in which we work, and that is the power of us talking to our students about our own engagement with feedback. We've seen some really amazing uh, results where we've literally shown students examples of comments that we might receive in the peer review process and showing them that we actually struggle with the way in which feedback makes us feel. And they're often really quite shocked when they see the type of feedback that, that we get on our writing. And so we can actually show students how we have to self-appraise, how we have to develop our assessment literacy, how we engage in goal setting and self-regulation when, for example, using peer review comments uh, from a paper we might have submitted. And also how we motivate ourselves to engage with that information when one of the reviewers might have been quite harsh in their critique of our work. So I think that power of modelling our own proactive recipients of feedback is something that's really powerful with huge potential to show students that it's a human difficulty that we might have with feedback. It's not something that they're struggling with in isolation. Naomi, thank you so much for talking to me about your article today. I've really enjoyed it and highly encourage everyone to get a hold of your 2017 article on Educational Psychologists, Volume 52, Issue 1. It's entitled Supporting Learners' Agentic Engagement with Feedback, a Systematic Review and a Taxonomy of Recipients' Processes, um, a really important synthesis that's going to push the field forward. So, Naomi, thank you again very much. Thank you.